Welcome back, everybody. This is Eric and Matt, and this is Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit, your beacon of freedom and the American way of life. Tune in every Friday for a new episode as we dive into the world of liberty and what makes our country great. All right, guys, we've got a wonderful podcast here today. I've got our good friend Corey Campbell from Microtech, and we are going to be diving into the world of Microtech, how they got started, all of that happy business. Uh, man, what a great show today. We've got Matt here with me. What's up? And of course, uh, I'm Eric. <laughs> For those of you that don't know. <laughs> the uh, Eric. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so a quick moment from our sponsors before we start today's show. Uh, we would like to thank our sponsor, Linton Thompson's White Gravy. Uh, really, really great gravy. All the ladies go crazy for Linton's White Gravy. Uh, to put a little bit of the South in your mouth. Love it. It's amazing. The Deep South. All right. So, Corey, how's life treating you? Life's fantastic. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Excited to be here to talk about Microtech. It's a... Uh, We've been in business for almost 30 years, so there's a good bit of history to go over, and there's a lot of cool stuff we've done in the past, and a lot of cool stuff we have coming for the future. Outstanding. I know, uh, not to to get ahead of ourselves, but I love the suppressor that you guys uh, have, the new can. Absolutely. Thank a lot you. of R&D went into that. There was right? a ton. Um, we actually started, um, had more, been working on it for about a year. Originally, was not planning on doing anything, any contract or military stuff, and uh, ended up kind of deciding we wanted to try and win a military contract for it. So ended up uh, for a couple of very high-level units is technically all I can say right and let you know where they go. But but it went to some of the best in our military. And uh, so then we started the trials for that, and that took about another year, year and a half. And finally won- ended up getting lucky enough and winning that contract. So that was pretty cool. So we, we've got a lot of features packed into this can you will not find in a lot of other offerings on the market. Nice. So there's definitely a lot of things to talk about because I, I think, Matt, maybe you can agree with me here or disagree or whatever. Uh, I think that the, the name Microtech is definitely synonymous with like uh, sort of that operator, tactical absolutely kind of not, – not even that so much, but I guess what's the word I'm trying to get at? Like the, the – what, what I would say like it? tactical slash first responder, just like a very, like a real world knife. That, Operator yes. driven. So something that you see, I mean, everything on the knife, at least from what I've seen, I've used Microtech for a while and I absolutely love them, but just the ingenuity that goes into it, everything has a purpose. So like down to like the glass breaker on the back, um, you know, the, the, all of the things in this knife that are made to uh, double redundancy. So like the OTFs with the safety, you can just people complain about like, oh, the the blade won't deploy. Like, just swing the knife and the blade comes out. Like, it's not that difficult if you. So all of these things that are built into the knife so that it doesn't fail catastrophically, um, it, it's really a great thing. I guess what I'm getting at is um, sort of the I, I wouldn't want to call it like operator theater, but like, look, and and I hope the guys at Recoil don't hate me for saying this because I love Recoil magazine, but like the people that consume something like Requel, all the like gun porn, all the Gucci Glocks right. and the Gucci ARs. Like the the Microtech for me is synonymous with being a Gucci knife, but not like in a bad way. I don't mean that in a in a disingenuous fashion. I mean it in the best ways. Mm-hmm. Uh be you know, like John Wick, you know, right. like the knife show about video games, things like that. Um they're very photogenic. There's just something about this cutlery that screams like it's just a, such a modern knife. Like if a if a tactical Turan Butler, you know, AR fifteen all tricked out, or an M two Benelli is like the apex of what that shotgun can be. Then to me, like Microtech is synonymous with the apex of what cutlery is. Tactical. Does that make sense? I would say I would agree with you with like tactical slash slash operational cutlery. Well, it's, yes. it's definitely an interesting thing because obviously our knives are not inexpensive even our most you know inexpensive knife is over two hundred dollars essentially and you know and a lot of a lot of instances you can get away with things you know getting sort of off brand of certain things or kind of going with a little little bit less money but with our knives i can you know especially seeing how they've been made and everything that goes into them you absolutely get what you pay for um you know like he was saying we we do a ton with first responders with military 
even some other militaries around the world um, that aren't, you know, American forces and the things that they put them through and the things I've seen, you know, some of these knives go through, they come back and they're still, war- you know, they just need to be sharpened is, you know, it's a testament, at least to me, because I've seen the hard, hard abuse and hard use. And we actually had a halo, which was one of our larger knives, uh, get ran over by a tank. And it, and it was it was separated, and it was just because the the way it had separated, just the screws came out, and they just put it right back together, and it worked just fine. And so nice. it withstood getting run over by a legit tank. And I'm like that that says something a little bit to the, just the build quality of kind of what we're trying to achieve. Maybe this is just an observation on my part, and you can either you know correct me or or back me up on this. My observation is that when it comes to Microtex customers is that usually someone that owns one Microtech owns more than one. So there's a lot of repeat business that people go back and buy them. And there's almost, uh, and and again, I don't mean this in a bad way, but it's like a Microtech cult where you've got these guys that like every single new color of OTF you come out with or every different configuration, they're going to buy it and they're going to add it to their collection. And they've got this, you know, um, you know how people have a patch wall? I've seen people have like their knife walls with the little pockets and they'll have like every single Microtech like nicely displayed and be able to have them there. So do you, would you say that when someone buys one Microtech that it's kind of like a gateway drug and they always want to buy more? 100%. Um, it is like sort of the word you use, a cult following is super, super apt. So I'm actually a part of um, more for like the public relations and customer service side of things. I'm a part of like the big Microtech forums on Facebook and things like that. And I see it all the time. Somebody says, bought my first Microtech a couple of weeks ago and now I have five. And, and, you know, like you were talking about the colors. I know people who have every single color of every knife we've made. And I'm talking like tens of thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars in our knives. And they have every single knife we've made in a specific color or in some, I mean, it's, it's just a vast collection. I mean, you know, and some of our, especially older stuff, you know, we had knives that got up into the 10 to $20,000 range. And every once in a while, we still make some that high, but even, even when we build those, those are sold before we even finish making them just because there are people who are just obsessed and it's a good problem to have. Um, but I think with the way we've done things, you know, very similar to like an Apple and that there's that cult following because of the brand perception and the sort of the, the quality perception of that brand. We've done a really good job over the you know last couple of years, especially of really kind of keeping a, a very kind of high end feel to our knives, you know, our, our packaging and everything, you know, to the, the whole thing's an experience when you buy anything expensive or that's, you know, on the higher end of anything, it's not just the product that you're you're getting, you're buying an experience that comes along with that. And so, you know, even though to some people it might sound dumb, even when you're opening the box to a, you know, to a even production microtech, we want you to kind of feel a little special. So it, there's a, there's a lot that really does go into it, but it's the cult following is insane. It's funny you mentioned Apple as well, because yeah. that is the thing that in any customer that buys an Apple product, the first thing they say is, wow, unboxing this is fun. Like it's yeah. so, it's almost like a Zen thing, right? Or what do they call that? Where you decorate feng shui, where like you decorate your house a certain way to feng like shui. provide feng shui, yeah, yeah to like mm-hmm. have like the har- harmony of the yeah. room. You know what I mean? Like the way that some of those things are packaged, it's like a harmonious. You know, mm-hmm. it, and it's so satisfying to unpack. And we have we have a custom one of our custom knives here too. And so like even when you get into the custom knives, like the the packaging and kind of the experience of opening it and you've, you know, you've got the super nice magnetic box and then the the pouch and then the sort of velvety little pouch inside of that. It's, it's all just a, a very awesome experience. And you know, you've done, you've bought something special, you've done something special, you've gotten something kind of cool. Um, and it, it kind of just adds to that entire effect. Right on. Well, I'll tell you every, I, I carry an ultra tech, um, the one with the glass breaker on the back and I, that's my EDC, so it goes in my pocket every day, and I use it for everything from opening boxes at the shop to, you know, whatever it may be, and every time I pull that thing out to use it and there's somebody that doesn't know what it is, they instantly fall in love with it. They're like, they're like did that just come out the front? Yes, that just came out the front. And, and <laughs> that it, just it, happened. Yeah, and they're they're just absolutely enamored with this. It's like some magic. And they're like, oh, can I see it? Like, yeah, sure, here. And they're like, well, how much does something like that cost? I'm like, well, you know, uh, this particular one, you can run anywhere between two to $300, depending on finish. And then it takes them a minute to digest that. So they're, say, they're saying, well, okay, I didn't expect that. But when you start going into like the build quality, and it's almost like people that carry Microtex are... 
their ambassadors for their brand because oh, yeah. they they do have to uh, explain what makes that so expensive. And there's a there's a cost in, in the build quality, the fit and finish, the different options, um, and just the ingenuity that goes into it. So, I mean, I 100% agree with people carrying Microtex being part of, uh, I'm not, I wouldn't say a cult, but definitely more of like an ambassadorship of, of just wanting everybody to understand why they should carry a knife. Whether, and it doesn't matter if it's like an expensive knife, but just carry one. This might be the, the pinnacle of your knife carrying experience in your life, um, but you have to start somewhere. I think another thing I'd like to add to that, Matt, if I may, is that what Microtech when I see a Microtech knife, the thing that it makes me think about, too, is normalizing not only the carrying of a knife, but making it almost like a fashion accessory. Like these younger folks, right? I do it. They, they yeah. <laughs> Not only do they want you know a functional piece of gear to carry on them if they've decided to carry a knife, but what Microtech says to me is it's almost a style, a fashion statement, too. And it's okay for something to be really beautiful in form and function and microtech does both it's a rugged knife but there's obviously some cosmetic features that are like wow you know that's a really sharp looking piece of gear i mean let's face it right like we want to look good while we're you know carrying out our everyday activities too uh that's important uh distinction to mention so absolutely core you mentioned that microtech's been in business 30 years plus now this yeah so i think this year is our 26th year so we're we're pushing 30 years Pushing 30 which is awesome let's kind of go back to the beginning a little bit, and and let's sort of go chronologically here. Okay, and what made the company Microtech start up? Like, what was its first product? What was the vision there? Uh, how did that come about? So this is this is a really really cool story, especially because of where Microtech is now and kind of being. I would I would definitely in the OTF world would consider us a powerhouse. Um, there's some other companies that make OTFs, and there's some other companies that make awesome knives. But I think that we you know we really have done a very very good job of creating a very, very strong and functional OTF knife, and which is what we're most known for. Um, but the funny thing is, you know, Anthony Marfion and Susan Marfion, who are the owners and co-founders of Microtech, uh, essentially started this out of their apartment. Um, you know, le- left his job and, and kind of were just, you know, we're selling knives out of their apartment. And it's really, it's, I wouldn't say a rags to riches story, but it's really a story of just, you know, entrepreneurship and, and starting from, you know, a company is nothing and building it to this just big powerhouse. Um, so the first knife that we were kind of known for was essentially a smaller version of our LUDT, which stands for large underwater demolition team knife. Um, and it was basically called the UDT and, um, Tony and Susan, made some of those essentially were selling them, you know, at knife shows, gun shows, and people were just very quickly enamored with this design. It was very utilitarian, but it was very, very strong and appealing to a lot of, to a lot of people. And it, you know, the way Tony will tell the story, he did not design this knife. He, he designed it for the military, but not as a combat knife. He designed, you know, cause they've always got all their, you know, crazy gear. And like you were saying, has all of these specific purposes, but he was like, you know, a lot of times he would find that these guys were not carrying just everyday knives to cut open packages and things like that. So it was a small knife designed to work when you needed it to work and, and kind of get, you know, just get all that normal kind of everyday stuff done. Um, and so then that was really what started Microtech and put us on the map. So then a few years, good. Well, so now was that knife, an OTF style? It was actually, it's essentially an automatic folding knife. Okay, so it was a folder. Mm-hmm. Yep, so, and, it, and it's, like I said, the the large underwater demolition team knife we have now is probably one of our most underrated knives we make, because again, you know, with the SOCOM is another folding knife we have. People know us for our OTFs. A lot of times, unless you're really, really into the culture of Microtech, people tend to just you know, just as a result of what we make, overlook the folding knives. And we, we've done some incredible torture tests. We actually chopped down a tree with a LEDT and then split a 40 cal bullet with it and did absolutely nothing. It still worked. It was totally fine. It was a serrated, uh, serrated knife. So it just chipped one of the serrations a little bit, but it was completely fine. So it, it's, it's cool. Nice. It's cool to see, you know, to see a knife be able to take that abuse. I'm never going to be blo- blocking bullets with my <laughs> knife, but it's, it's just cool to know that. You're never going to, I'm never going to outwork my knife. Wow. So in terms of like the stuff that's in the line right Mm -hmm. now, uh, I mean, that's how they got their start. So when was the first OTF knife that Microtech came out? So the first Ultratech um, was sort of the late 
uh, the like 1990s. So like 1998, the 1998 to 2000 range is when our Ultratech came out. And that is our most popular OTF. Uh, like you were saying, you, you know, you carry one every day. Oh, it's, yeah. it's one of those knives that fits into a lot of people's hands and it suits a lot of people's kind of just lifestyles. I mean, I, I typically carry either a SOCOM or a combat Troodon, which is one of our much bigger knives. Um, but I'm also, I'm not worried about hiding the knife. You know, I've got a little bit bigger hands. Um, and you know, so the, the Ultratech, it's still a, not a small knife, but it just, it fits a lot of people's hands and a lot of people's lifestyles. And it's the knife we probably make the most color blade configurations in. So it tends to be the one that when people are getting into Microtech, it's the one people gravitate towards because it's the one they have the most options with, which is, it can be overwhelming. I think the price point uh, plays into that as well. I mean, it's a, it is on the, it is everything that you are looking for in an OTF at a very affordable price point versus Absolutely. like when you start getting into like your actual like combat mm-hmm. or your halo series, um, they, up there. they're, they're pretty expensive now. <laughs> I mean, those have a, a specific purpose in mind. Mm-hmm. Those are not box openers. Uh, those, uh, have a, a specific purpose, but in my opinion, the reason I carry the ultra tech is because it fits in your pocket. It's, it fits in your hand at real nice. Um, and it doesn't break the bank and it does everything that you needed to do. And, you can't put holes in somebody with this. So it, it checks all the boxes. And they're super light. People, yeah. especially if they've never held them before, um, almost all of our knives, unless we specify otherwise, almost all of our knives are from machined aluminum, either 6061 or 7075. And so people, when they get the knives in their hand, especially for the size, are like, well, this weighs nothing. And then you get into our carbon fiber models or titanium, and it you know gets even crazier. But, uh, you know, like, I'll put it even a combat in my pocket and I can barely even feel that it's there. So they, they all carry very, very well, um, which kind of lends himself to being an everyday carry knife. How long have you guys been doing the fixed blade knives? Was that something that seemed like a natural progression just because you know, a lot of other companies make fixed blade knives? I mean, when people think Microtech, they don't really think that it's synonymous with like an awesome fixed blade piece of cutlery right yeah not really um those are all of our most of our fixed blade models are i I would say tailored more to people who have kind of already been in the culture of microtech for a while um you know because at at any given time you know we've we've consolidated a little bit but we've at one time had seven to eight thousand different SKUs of knives and we're not we're not making all of those at the same time um which definitely lends itself to our demand you know factor that we have but you know we have so many options. You tend to kind of, as you get more into the knives, and once you get one, like we said, you end up getting multiples. Um, but then once you get into that phase of kind of your relationship with Microtech is when you start being, what else do they have? And you find, oh, we have fixed blades. And, you know, this past year, we actually came out with a Crambit, um, an auto Crambit, as well as like a fixed blade. Um, so we started kind of branching out, especially in the fixed blade world. Um, I don't know if you guys know Sibo uh, from Borka Blades, uh, but he is very well known for his stitch, his manual stitch knife which is a freaking gorgeous knife. It's so, so pretty, especially some of the crazy stuff he does with them. We made an auto version of that. That's a collaboration with him. And he just, this past year did a, a really, really cool fixed blade. Um, and we did a production version of that in collaboration with him. And so we, we've definitely branched out. Um, I personally love the collaborations. Um, especially when, you know, if if I'm involved in some of the stuff, like we just did one with B and T, um, for this really, really cool, you know, military contract kit, and just kind of getting to interact with other people and kind of blend our products. Um, I, it's a cool process, and you end up meeting some cool people. So I, I really like the the collab stuff we do. I would say definitely that you know when you look at a brand like B and T, um, Microtech and B and T go together like peanut butter and jelly <laughs> in terms of the type of people that it, it uh, attracts. And I don't mean that in a negative way, of course. Uh, I love B and T products. Uh, they've got some They're great awesome. guns. Uh, I love that that five five six they've got. I, I haven't had a chance to shoot one of the pistols yet, but it looks like a really nice uh, setup. Uh, I do have an APC nine K, uh, which that's the gun that got the contract. That is, yeah, it so is. That's really interesting that they're doing the you know limited edition release. I think you've said what like one hundred seventy five pieces or something. I think like that. for that one they did three hundred fifty, but they're I mean they're expensive. There I mean and and you get what you pay for. Like, you're getting something very limited, but I want to say they're they're in the, like the seven thousand dollar ballpark range but you get the Um, microtech too you do and you actually for the first time ever we did a mini miniature plaque 
for that particular knife. Um, typically, that has only ever been reserved for the like the full-on custom knives that we make out of our Marfion custom shop. Um, so this is the first time we've ever done a a little plaque specifically for a knife like that that's not been technically a dedicated custom. Well, I would like to take just a, a quick moment to uh, you know let people know that we did do a couple of I- IV eighty eight eighty eight custom Microtex. Now, at the time that this podcast drops, I don't think. Uh, we're going to have one up for sale at this very moment, but we you know we've had a few uh, come through. I mean this this green and yellow Ultratech. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, that I is mean, my favorite right there. It, man. It's kind of like an yeah. ammo cannon. A knife had a baby, and uh, this one was very very successful, and people really loved it. So we will be doing more, um, you know, customs with Microtech if they're willing, of course. And I really like that you guys work with people like me and work with the industry. I think that's a smart, uh, if I may even, you know, dip my, my toe in this water and, uh, and say that, that it is really cool to see you guys branching out and, and expanding your horizons to other markets. Uh, I hate to throw, put on the marketing hat, but from a marketing <laughs> perspective, it is oh, smart yeah. to reach other audiences that, you know, might be outside of the knife world. Cause it's, it's funny earlier, you and I, Corey, were talking about how the knife world, is a is a much much more inclusive and all encompassing world in terms of the interest levels and the interest groups that are into cutlery as a whole, as opposed to people that might be into firearms only as a whole or firearms and cutlery as a whole. So it's like it's almost like the knife cult following is sort of um, a very different world than just the gun world. You know, obviously, I started in the firearm side of the industry doing you know public relations and kind of marketing and things like that. Um, and then when I got into the knife world, it was, it was very much the same, but different. Um, it's, it's a very small kind of world, but it's expanding rapidly because like, I think what you were saying, you know, we were talking earlier, you know, a lot of times people with the gun industry side of things tend to try and politicize it a little bit. And which, you know, when we talk about, we don't see it as, as that kind of issue. And it's, but it's the same with knives, you know, people don't treat it as a political issue. And so it, it's just expanding rapidly with people who are, like you were saying, normalizing this, the carrying of a knife for, especially for self-defense, you know, possibly in states where people might not be able to carry guns or just their particular situation doesn't lend them well to have any other type of self-defense tool. I think people have really started embracing that carrying knives is an acceptable thing and it's, it's becoming more normal. I, I would agree. And it, it, I look at carrying a knife, um, I guess that was the initial thought process when I, I didn't always carry a knife and then I started carrying a knife and it turns into more of just this routine of, I know that I have the ability, whether it's for self-preservation, but more than likely, I look at it as more of a tool of self, uh, self-reliance. self Meaning if I'm in my car and I got to get out of my car, I can break my window. I have a glass breaker. If I need to cut my seatbelt off, I can cut my seatbelt off. I can help other people. So I'm looking at it more of as a tool to help myself and help others. I mean, yes, carrying a firearm is great, but you're not going to use your gun to rescue somebody that flipped their car on the side of the highway. And something as simple as a knife with a glass breaker is able to achieve much more in that situation than a firearm. Not saying you shouldn't carry a firearm by all means, absolutely, but you're adding more to your uh, repertoire of items and skills that you can help. I agree. And I think that when you look at people that carry knives all the time and it's just like almost a quasi religious thing, like like the religion of it, you know, uh, sort of creating that situation where people are so passionate about it that it's almost religious to them, you know, and, and that's great. Right. Um, it, It is interesting, the crossover between gun people and knife people. And I think it's also a cultural importance that people do see the normalcy established with carrying uh, a knife. Because if we get a whole bunch of people carrying cutlery, then after a while, it's like, all right, well, you see a guy with a gun on his hip or an AR in his vehicle or someone's going to the range and they're carrying a range bag. It's just, it's not a big deal because people start associating it with, well, you know, it's it's completely normal. I mean, here I am with this knife or this gun and everybody can just do their thing. So I think that the culture in our country is changing. And one thing I would add to what you said earlier, Corey, about it not being as much of a political point. Uh, you're right, because knives are not politicized nearly at the same level that guns are. 
Not in and, not um, in Georgia. I would say in some other states they they are a much bigger. Well, uh, they are, but let's let's also look at legislation and let's look at uh, things like that. Right? You don't see very much situations where politicians are talking about, oh, we should ban going after your knives, or we should, yeah, <laughs> we should have a knife ban, or oh, you have to do a mandatory knife turn in or a knife buyback or. Or something, and you see those types of things happening like overseas in other countries. I mean, oh, like Great sure. Britain for sure. You look yeah. at England, you know that that whole deal. UK, they wanted to put to GPS in the handles of all knives, right? So in the in the UK, you can't even you can't even carry a kitchen knife down the road unless you can prove you're going to work or right. you're a construction worker yeah. or, or you're going to cook. You know, you're screw, for something. Screwdrivers are banned too. You can't have a screwdriver right. in your so possession. This the is difference in culture between that end of the of the culture spectrum and us where you know you've got john wick uh running a microtech and 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 saying well jeeves we need guns lots of guns it's like it's a completely different mentality in terms of the way americans approach defense and self-preservation and the way that other countries just aren't given or or even demand the ability uh to you know, commit violence on their own end if they need to. Like, governments all around the world have a monopoly on violence, and the United States is one of the rare instances in the world where, you know, we actually, we don't have, the government doesn't have a monopoly on violence here, but we do borrow it. Yeah. (laughs) You know. Well, you know, it's kind of what Matt was talking about with some some of the states definitely do regulate the knives pretty strictly. Um, it tends, it, it's very few of them. Um, most states, you can carry our knives because what a lot of people don't realize is the vast majority of our knives are not considered switchblades. It's kind of, it, you know, it, it gets the term across. It at least gives you an idea of what the knives do. You know, they shoot out the top, you know, an OTF out the front. Um, but in general, that nomenclature is not fully accurate for most of our knives. And that's technically how we get, I wouldn't say we get around it, but like our knives tend to be legal in a lot of places because they do in some places restrict the carrying or ownership of switchblades, but not OTF knives because our knives are technically assisted. They're not, they're not actually spring operated. They're just spring assisted. Um, but t- I tend to find that the States that have incredibly strict gun laws also have incredibly strict knife laws. Interesting. Um, there's a, there's definitely a correlation to that um, for the most part. Like you'll, you'll see a lot of places. It's, it's pretty difficult to carry our knives in like California, obviously, you know, like, Illinois, you know, New York, those places tend to make it pretty difficult for you to, you know, in some some cases even own them. Um, but the, they, there's definitely a correlation between strict gun laws and strict knife laws a little bit. I, I just wanted to say this before I forget, because I thought about this earlier when you were talking about uh, and not to get off, you know, get off the rails. But uh, I know I'm going to forget it. The one thing I noticed about Microtech and the one thing that I appreciate um, was the fact that you guys tell everybody what steel is is going into the knife. So not a lot of knife companies. It's kind of like you don't know. It's like, oh, I'm getting a knife. It's made of steel. But what kind of steel versus Microtech will say, hey, this year's production run is made from it's going to be this, this or this. So you know what you're getting. And they're all going to be good quality steel versus something you get that's imported that it could break on you or, mm-hmm. or whatnot. So that part, I, I just wanted to say that because I was going to forget. Well, it's, it's funny because I will see a lot of knife and there, there's a lot of good steels out there. And it's, it's like a lot of things where there might be technically a better steel than what we use, but it's either a much more cost prohibitive, you know, it, it would cost us way more or it's not really particularly built for the application our knives are for. And so, you know, we really believe that the, you know, the three to four steels that we currently use are some of the absolute best you can get for these types of knives and the abuse you might put them through. Um, so for everybody listening, the four we currently use are um, XHP, CTS 204P, which are both made by Carpenter, and then uh, M390 and LMAX, which were pretty well known for doing that. But I, I did find it funny that a lot of higher end knife companies will either and they'll still charge a premium and kind of use not very what I would consider premium steels. Um, and I'm not a metallurgist, but or they just won't even like you said, they won't even tell you what kind of steel they're using. And then, you know, through kind of being in the industry, you can kind of find out some stuff and they're they're not using very good steel. And that's definitely a to me a disservice to to people when you're charging them, you know, when they're two or three hundred dollars for a knife. I mean, you know, you're buying a product that we, you know, we 
value and we kind of take pride in building to be completely honest, especially when you see how much goes into building one mm-hmm. and, you know, our names on it. And I, you know, to some extent when I'm talking to somebody and I feel like I've kind of convinced them to buy a knife, I feel like my name is kind of on that. And so if it wasn't a quality product, I'd feel kind of bad, you know, that we were kind of steering people the wrong way. So thankfully that's something that has always been at the front of the owner's minds is no matter, you know, how much it costs, no matter how, long it takes us to build something or how hard it is for us to do it. We want to make something that is quality. That is, that's a huge, a huge thing at Microtech. Well, the last thing you want to do is be a snake oil salesman. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and, and promise the world and deliver, you know, very under delivered product. You know, I think uh, one thing that I'd like you to elaborate on too, is not only, you know, the steels you're using, I'm, I'm sure there's also a correlation between the steel you use on the blades and the coatings. So, like, I'm sure certain steels probably take certain coatings better than others, but you guys do experiment with, you know, some different coatings. Absolutely. And you guys have different blade profiles that you mm-hmm. offer, and I'm sure that attributes to all of the SKUs. So, if you guys may not be thinking about it, they're listening. Uh, another thing to consider is, let's say that I have one model of knife in one color. Let's just say flat black, uh, ultra tech, or whatever. Well, then, if that blade has two or three different coatings or two or half serrated, full serrated, then you start adding all of these other features. Well, then, yeah, what would be a simple black knife now becomes, you know, 15 or 20 skews for what is essentially just a bunch of variants of one single black oh, knife. Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's how we so end that's up... that's how those skews bunch up like That's that. how we end up with 7,000 skews. You know, you've got, yeah. like, the Ultratech. We've got... You know, six, you know, six or it might be even more than this just off the top of my head, you know, six to 10 different blade styles we we do or have done in the past. You've got how many primary and secondary colors, you know, like you were saying, different coatings, different materials, like an Ultratech that has a carbon fiber top versus just your standard one is a totally different skew. And then you've got each individual skew of that blade style for that. I mean, so, you, you know, you get into easily 30, 40 different skews for one single knife in one color sometimes. So it, it can add up pretty quickly. So, but yeah, and, and now this, this past year with a lot of the different coatings, we've actually separated them into their own category. Um, it's sort of what we would consider our mid tech line. It's kind of a signature. It's a, called a signature series and it falls between our customs and our production stuff. So yeah, that's where you will see all of our DLC coatings or any of our other kind of very hard or cool coatings. That's where we do all of our bronzed coated blades and which we've done some bronze Damascus, uh, past couple of months, which looks Absolutely awesome. And Damascus steel in general. I love it. Uh, and then we'll do, so well, we'll do, we've done copper knives. We just did some, uh, did a run of copper combat trodons a couple weeks ago, which were really, really cool. It just looks, looks great. Um, and just any of the crazy, um, coatings or, um, you know, the materials that we might use that might not really be something we're going to use in the custom side, but it's still a little too, you know, too premium to use on our production stuff falls into that category. And those tend to be a little more expensive. They they're going to be anywhere from like 400, depending on the model, 400 to about a thousand, $1,300. And then that starts bridging the gap right up to our customs, which tend to be just over a grand and go, like I said, technically all the way up to close to $20,000. I mean, sounds like that's like Cabot guns territory. When you start getting into like oh, full custom stuff, yeah, I mean it's it's the amount the the level of craftsmanship that goes into like, anything that requires that much craftsmanship uh, will run up in price. And honestly, even with like an ultra tech, um, you know, I I am really into high end watches, and finishing is a big thing for me. So when you have a full metal chassis and you can grab it anywhere and you're not catching a burr anywhere mm-hmm. and you're not having to worry about something snagging. Um, it says a lot because these are not like Ultratex are mass produced knives. Like you guys are cranking them out. They're probably your number one selling knife. And to have that level of finishing on every single knife, it says a lot, um, you know, and, and you start getting into the different steels and you are absolutely right. So when you start looking at different steels, somebody could say, well, yeah, you could use a harder steel, but it's not applicable to what you're going to be using the knife for. So oh, absolutely. When you start looking at like super high end watches, they'll be like, oh, well, this watch is made of 904L. This watch is made of 316L. The actual hardness of the steel isn't that different. One is just more corrosion resistant than the other. So if you're not going to be diving in the watch you don't technically need 904 l 316 will work just as fine um but people place a premium on that because 
That's oh, what absolutely. they want. And the same thing with whether it's firearms or knives. I mean, if it's not applicable, then you don't have to pay that premium to get it. You're not, you know, the, yeah, I'm but, sure you guys have diving knives. <laughs> but yes, there sir. are the people that are going to buy the, the watch that can be submerged to 300 feet. Yes. Even though they never are going to dive with it, they're never going to be in the water. Just, just to so know. they can look at their buddy and go, <laughs> see this? Look what this can, can do. go 300 feet down the water and it, it'll still work. But the human body can't go 300 feet <laughs> well, you know it's funny because um this was years and years ago but we were essentially um i'd say commissioned but worked with some some special forces guys to essentially make a push dagger um okay. and so the the dagger they were kind of using at the time it was still very good but if you know it was very very thin and i'm not even sure the steel they were using but it they were complaining of them mostly because of the design of it being super thin was breaking a ton and so we ended up developing what was called the MDT, which is the Microtech Dispatch Tool. And we've probably That's honestly cool only name. ever made 100 to 150 of them ever for like for sale to civilians. And it's made, I can't remember the exact steel, I'd butcher it, so I'm not going to even try, but it's um, it's like some CV like 30 type of steel. It's like a super, super steel. I mean, it's just, from from everything I've read about it, basically can't break it. I mean, it's just mega steel. Could you just picture how that conversation went? You know what I mean? Like... You know, some SF guy, you know, they got back in the rear, taking off their gear, and, and some guy goes, Ugh, man, Tom, well, what's going on, Joe? Man, I went to, you know, push this push dagger and this dude's skull and broke it off. Like, <laughs> I still got my push dagger embedded in his skull. Yep. Like, imagine that conversation. Oh, absolutely. Man, we got to get some better push daggers. <laughs> you know, we, we take a lot of that stuff, um, especially with the military, like, super, super seriously, because, like, to us, that's not realistically that's not something we're going to ever need to use or you know in most cases but that's you know for especially for like anybody in like any of the special operations community that that actually could be a real thing that they require that it's needed um and so when when they were designing that they took it super seriously i mean it's it's probably the width maybe a little bit bigger of probably a golf ball a golf ball and a half size and it's just a giant basically triangular prism <laughs> and it's just i mean it would i couldn't even imagine the damage something like that would do so let's change gears a little bit here, and I'd like to talk about the full-on customs. Okay. Uh, now, this is one area in the knife lineup. I know we've kind of jumped around to some different yeah. subjects, but this is one area that I probably have the least um, knowledge of. Yeah. I was aware that you guys did a couple of you know higher-end knives, but I didn't aware, wasn't aware that you did just full-on customs like this. So uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the first thing I would say about the custom shop is... The, the term custom shop and, you know, custom to a lot of people means very different things. So you cannot call us up and design your own knife for kind of, for the most part, have a knife commissioned. But it is something where we've got a couple of really talented guys, including, you know, the owner and the owner's son who are designing and making and very hands on with with these knives. Um, and so they are going to have a couple of different distinctions. Um, a couple of them are always going to have super premium materials. So you'll see some of our ultra techs or, or other, other OTFs, you know, the combats they'll be inlaid with meteorite or they'll be inlaid with, uh, you know, crazy Damascus steel or just, you know, all sorts of just different crazy materials, abalone. Um, and, and it, you know, it gets, it gets crazy. Um, and for those of us, uh, you know, or those of you that are listening, I would just like to mention too, I'm, I'm looking at this custom here and it's got this really nice, like, fleece line pouch. It, it's definitely an experience. You know, it's got the embroidered signature, you know, really cool logo on the outside. It, it's just all the tiny little details. The zipper pull, you know, is really cool. You have this little knife logo, it's really neat. And um, so, again, part of that premium experience is, you know, not only like when you unbox a standard Microtech. Um, there's still nothing standard about that, right? Oh, yeah. But when you unbox a custom, it's like, wow. It's like you're being presented on like a plush pillow. You know what I mean? It You get that feeling like it was made just for you and no one else. And, and a lot of people don't realize, you know, sort of like that little uh, pull zipper you were talking about has a, a little miniature Microtech Marfion dagger on it. And a lot of times we will correlate the type of knife that's in that pouch with the material that that little dagger is made of. So some of those knives will have Damascus. Some of them will be 
um, titanium. I mean, it just, we do really, really cool stuff with those. All of our customs that we make are hand ground, which basically is just a, there's a bunch of different types of grinding, um, patterns and styles. Um, basically just gives it a very unique shape. And you can, you can look at a custom knife if you have it up beside a production knife and you can see the difference and sort of the subtle hand grinding that was done to the knives. But even so with like our production stuff, what a lot of people don't realize is outside of the physical just machining of the raw parts, every single knife is essentially 100% done by hand. They are fully awesome. assembled by hand, fully sharpened by hand. People actually um, think that we, like maybe a lot of makers would do, uh, have different types of jigs and stuff. Every single knife that comes out of our facility is ha- like freehand sharpened. Um, you know, hand, like I said, hand assembled, hand inspected, just absolutely every step of the way our knives are pretty much just hands-on. And we make probably honestly about 99% of everything in-house. Um, which the uh, one of our main facilities is in uh, essentially Asheville, North Carolina. Technically, it's Mills River, um, and then we also have a facility, manufacturing facility in Pennsylvania. Okay. But, but you know, like I said, with the customs, especially, you are you know you're lucky if you're spending less than fifteen hundred dollars for most of them. And what you're getting is like particular knife you're looking at is a full DLC Warhound. So it's a flipper, but the entire knife has been DLC'd. Sometimes we'll use titanium. Um, for the scales of all our knives, sometimes we will use full brass or, you know, some in copper. Just we, we go just crazy with it. And we've got a mosaic Damascus, which is blue when we kind of treat it. It's just some crazy stuff. I think there's also um, certainly a huge group of people that love the idea of copper because the way it ages. Oh, absolutely. And it just gets this beautiful look to it, this luster. Like it's, it's worn and authentic when it gets that sort of discoloration. Right. But it is just wildly unique to you because the wear that you're going to get on that copper or that brass is going to be unique to how you carry yeah. it, where it touches your body, how you hold it. So it's just you you almost get your own little custom finish every single person who owns one that's like a copper one, you know. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. that, it, it has that natural patina that takes place. And um, there was one uh, one watch particularly. It was from Tudor. It was uh, they made it out of uh, brass. And the whole case was made out of brass and it basically it patinas on its own. So when you look at it, like you'll, you'll see that everybody's watch looks different. And I mean, it's actually it, pretty cool. Yeah. It, it's, it's a, <laughs> it's a black bay called a, it was bronze actually. I'm sorry. Not because the name of the watch is a black bay bronze. So it was, it was actually milled out of bronze. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, it patinas beautifully. It, it's such a great watch. I had another question. Yeah. Okay. And, and I'm, I hate to bombard you, but this is more, I guess, a sort of a question and a, a thought, I guess. But when you look at the type of customer that is going to buy one of these customs, you know, and you're talking a fifteen hundred plus dollar knife, uh, and then you look at um, a lot of the firearms that are out there that you can buy for fifteen hundred bucks. I mean, that's a lot of gun. It right, fifteen hundred bucks. You can get one impressive piece uh, piece of hardware in terms of a firearm. So, someone who's going to drop that much coin on a knife is definitely serious about owning knives. And would you say that a lot of people that buy the upper end of the echelon from Microtech, do you think they already have like a bunch of guns, and maybe they just want some awesome knives to go along with their awesome gun collection, or do you think that maybe there's also an equal amount of people that maybe they have some of the lower models and they want to just take that step up and, and go, all right, you know what? I'm going to go for a custom now just to have that check in the box because maybe they're mega fans. I mean, I would picture the person that buys this knife as being like a Microtech mega fan versus would you say that maybe a person's first purchase with Microtech being a custom, how many first time buyers of a Microtech buy a custom over people that are repeat buyers? Based on that last question, you're definitely going to have a much higher percentage of people who are who have bought Microtex before before they buy the customs. But it's actually a it's actually a very interestingly diverse group of people because you have you have a couple of different people. So you'll have like you were saying a couple of people who might have a couple and then just out of nowhere they decide you know what I want to level up. Then you've got your guys who have tons and tons of knives. I, I know I know guys who only collect customs. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very, very bad about if I, especially if I jump down the rabbit hole of some new hobby or, you know, something like that, I tend in my head to be like, I don't care what it is. I need 
the the best of the best kind of deal. So like, you know, especially if it's like a performance type of hobby, I don't have to worry about the equipment holding me back, even though I'm never good enough ever, <laughs> ever for that to that take is place. That's such a great point. But <laughs> great point. But I have actually seen a ton of people who have never owned a microtech before. And so sort of that kind of mindset is they're like, you know what? I want to go. I just want to jump straight in and, you know, dive in, you know, head first into like the top of the, the food chain. I'll tell a quick story. Okay. Very, very quick. Won't take but a second. Story time with Eric. Yeah. Story time with Eric. So when I got back into doing a lot more ocean fishing uh, on a regular basis, I had to go and, and get some more equipment, right? So, like, the first year or two that I got back into it, you know, I bought some of the entry-level pin reels and maybe, like, some of the um, Ugly Sticks, which I believe is an Abu Garcia product, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, the rods held up good because Ugly Sticks you can't destroy. There's ridiculously strong fishing rods. That's kind of the claim to fame. But uh, I hooked a fish on the beach, and the reels, the reel seat, uh, which is, like, the portion that attaches to the to the rod broke on oh, the no. cheaper pin product. And then I was like, all right, I'm going to try to kind of go maybe a step up and a step up. So pin is known, not without going down this rabbit hole, but they have everything from super entry level all the way up to, you know, their super high quality, you know, touring, you know, professional fishermen, turn tournament grade fishing reels. Right. Well, I found that I was the happiest buying, buying once and crying once. So, you know, I bought a slammer three, uh, which is, Definitely not their cheapest reel. Uh, it's it's certainly in the upper echelon of reels that they offer. And I've had that reel now for three years straight, and it works awesomely. And it has a bunch of drag on uh, on on tap, and it's ridiculously tough. And I don't ever have to worry. I know that when I close that bale, if a big fish bites, that reel is going to deliver the goods. So I take it that Microtech's the same way, like. The difference, though, is that even the least expensive Microtech is going to be a step above any other type of knife in its class. I, I would That's definitely the way I view it. That's my perception of. I it. would definitely say so. Kind of going with with the blending of the the customs and the production. Like I was saying, everything's still done by hand. We we really do, as opposed to like some manufacturers of, of just various you know random products where there is like totally different manufacturing processes that go into their higher end stuff versus lower end stuff. You know, I can honestly say that having seen it, you know, our guys still take the exact same amount of care and attention to detail in doing their production stuff as they do the custom stuff, you know, but it's interesting. I mean, I I do like what you were talking about. I do that with guns all the time where I'm, you know, I'm not the world's best shooter. I'm no Jerry Michalik. And I still in my head feel like even if I'm not going to use it, if I'm going to buy this AR, I'm going to buy this 2011. I I want to know that I've just got the best thing I can get for whatever I think I'm going to use it for. And then it sits in a box for three years and I haven't shot it once. <laughs> but, but I know a ton of people like that. You know, they, they just want to, they want to know that if something were to ever happen or if I ever needed to use it for X, Y, or Z, it's, it's ready to go. I look at it like standing equity. When you buy a good, high-quality product, and I'm not trying to be a microtech salesman, but I'm trying to be a salesman of all things quality, right? So it doesn't matter what in life you wind up doing, whether it's buying a vehicle, whether it's uh, replacing your tires, whether it's buying a knife, a a firearm, a fishing reel, a rod. Uh, I could go down the rabbit hole of rods. I've broke a lot of fishing rods, all right? I've broke some expensive fishing rods. I've broke some cheap fishing rods, but one common denominator rods can and will break no matter how expensive there is no invincible fishing rod okay so the thing is you buy in good quality and you go in equity you have the equity of knowing that you have purchased a high quality product and that that product is going to have you know a good backing and guarantee so like you guys have a great warranty program for your knives we do as well correct we do um we actually this is a good place to talk about it actually because um essentially have a limited lifetime warranty which you know covers pretty much any you know anything with obviously manufacturing defects or you know somebody breaks a spring all that's covered you know for the for the longest time um we we know we and we always tell people this our technical warranty says you can't sharpen your knife or can't really fiddle with your knife at all and although technically that's true we really and we, and we openly tell people this. We really don't care, you know. It's uh, as long as you don't 
do something that destroys your knife or causes us to have to replace a major component, you know, we will fix it. We'll fix it anyway. They're just my, you know, if, if somebody is sharpening their knife and let's say that we see this a lot where they, they don't want to send it into us to sharpen, which I, I, you know, I get, I understand not wanting to be without your product, the thing you've paid for, um, especially if it's the only one you have, but then they try and sharpen it and then they end up creating a, a needle because they just, they couldn't get the edge right. And they just keep sharpening until there's no metal left. And it's like, at that point, we will absolutely still fix it for you, but you're just going to have to buy a replacement blade. And so, you know, almost anything, there's, there's few things in my opinion that come in that we're like, we absolutely, there's nothing we can do, um, to, you know, to fix that. And we, you know, we, we do that with, uh, law enforcement military guys as well. We have a, you know, a law enforcement military program, um, which actually includes medical personnel. So any EMTs, nurses, doctors, um, you know, we, we understand that in their line of work, they are going to be doing things that, you know, with their tools that might not necessarily be the best, you know, application of that tool. And they also may put the job and the task at hand over the safety and And, integrity of the tool. And we we understand that. They may pry. They may do something that would be outside the bounds of what that is designed to do. When it comes to that subset of people doing those jobs, especially Microtech, we are very openly, very proud of our military, our, you know, law enforcement community, as well as our medical personnel, especially during this past year when we've had all this stuff with COVID-19 going on. Um, we, we understand that they're going to be using their knives and applications that knives might not have been best for. And we take all of that into consideration when, especially when we're fixing their knives and, and we tend to really work with those guys to get their stuff back to them fast, you know, cause they're, cause they're using it on the job. It's, it's what they do. I was going to tell you. So uh, <laughs> a buddy of mine, a cop buddy of mine, uh, got one of the limited edition um, Ultratech Iraq veteran ones, the the green and yellow one with the IV-88 logo. And he sent me a text and he's like, yeah, I had to use the glass breaker the other day on the job. So he, he used it. Very so I nice. Thought that was love, cool. I actually love those my, stories. My out there breaking windows was kind of cool. <laughs> oh, you know, it's it's funny too, like, you know, because I obviously I do a bunch of the public relations stuff for Microtech. So any, any stuff we do for movies and um, or, you know, print or just any type of collaborative stuff, I tend to to look at and oversee, but I also do all the military government sales. So anytime I get a message on Instagram or I get, you know, somebody calls in to be like, or emails me with a picture of their knife that they used, you know, honestly to save somebody's life, you know, overturned car or cut a seatbelt out. Like it definitely puts what we're doing into perspective. Cause at the, you know, I'm not building the knives, but at the end of the day, our company, we make knives and it could be really easy to just be like, all we do is make, you know, make knives. But it really, especially for that group of people who rely on the things that we're making, it, it really puts into perspective that we do actually in a certain way, do something very, very important and valuable. And I, I it makes kind of what I do. It's kind of cliche as it sounds. It makes kind of what I do feel very worth it. And like, we're actually in some way making even a small difference. Um, if we're creating tools that people use to save other people's lives, especially when they trust it so much. Oh, absolutely. The name. Yeah. Um, all right. So warranty's excellent. You know, we talked about the customs. What is on the horizon? Uh, I know we talked briefly in the intro there about the suppressors mm-hmm. and, uh, man, I know our listeners can't see this suppressor and this kit, but uh, it is a little on the pricey side. I think you were saying the MSRP was around thirteen or so. So it's uh, the MSRP is going to be twelve hundred. Okay, twelve hundred. Um, and then you know when I talk to people about it, especially if they're newer into the suppressor industry, a lot of people don't realize that a lot of, especially uh, handgun silencers now, don't really come with pistons or anything extra. Like you just buy all that aftermarket. Ours comes in a kit with multiple pistons, a fixed barrel spacer for putting it on non-reciprocating firearms. Um, it comes with an entire kit, so it is ready to go on many, many of your firearms if you have you know threaded barrels for those right out of the box, and you've got everything you need um, just ready to go. And, and it's made completely of titanium. Right? It is made almost 100% of uh, very high-grade titanium. I can't remember the, the grade off the top of my head. Um, pretty much the only thing that is not titanium on it is the boosters themselves that for anybody listening connects you know the barrels the silencer to the the host firearm and you know the actual piston housing that holds the piston in Um, pretty much the entire suppressor is titanium which is good because anybody that's used a silencer on a pistol um, they do have to be a little bit longer which mm-hmm. means there's a lot of weight. If you're not using a titanium suppressor, you, you can really underestimate how nose heavy that firearm gets when you don't have something as light as titanium. Um, now, yes, there's there's some weight, but it's not nearly uh, as much as a non-titanium silencer. And some gun designs also 
are really, really finicky about a heavier suppressor on a pistol, right? Yep, I know absolutely. One, one that comes to mind instantly are Glocks. Uh, Glocks are infamously known for being finicky to suppress. Um, and if it's one person I can say is is a, an authority on that subject is Chad, because he's our local suppressor guru here. Oh, yeah. And he, uh, he knows how to suppress Glocks uh, to where they'll work, uh, but they tend to be a little on the finicky side. So that was so obviously I, we mentioned it earlier, but we won a legitimate military contract for this can. And one of the things when designing it, we did was we made sure every single gun we tested it on it would work. That's and awesome. so um, I've yet to have any type of gun related failures from from running the can. So that's awesome because again, like you were saying, the weight and everything, guns can be finicky. Um, and so we we made sure that it it should work with any handgun. And you were reciprocating, you know, handgun that you could put it on. And so, you, I'm sorry, go ahead, man. Uh, I was, I was going to mention, or I was going to ask you guys, um, this is your own proprietary baffle system. So it it's is. not like other companies where they kind of borrow that design mm-hmm. and they, they pay to use that and just rebrand it. This is something that's 100% done in-house. So as of this taping, we have five active uh, U.S. and European patents on it. Awesome. Um, and then we have, I think, two or three more that we're just waiting to come back, which more, you know, I would assume we're going to get granted. Um, I would say my favorite one, obviously one of them is the baffle design. It's essentially a heavily modified K baffle, uh, but it's got some, like you guys have seen, it, it's got some very unique features to it, some mm-hmm. different things to kind of disrupt the the gas flow. But I would say just because nobody else does this, my favorite feature is that the baffles are actually captured. So it's a it's a unit that can be made shorter or longer, so you can kind of decide how much suppression you want. But for more of an operational design, because, again, it was designed for operational needs, the front cap can be off of the suppressor, and you could still use it, and it still suppresses. You lose a little bit of sound, um, but it's not like a lot of other suppressors. I mean, I, I definitely have done this at the range where I forgot. I was changing changing something out, changing end caps for a different caliber. have absolutely forgot to put my end cap back on because I'm rushing or, you know, I'm teaching somebody how to shoot, and so I'm, it's not, my mind is not you know, on putting the thing back together. And I've definitely sent baffles down range, <laughs> which, you know, like I said, it's not going to really affect most people, but it's very, very cool to know if you ever lost that or misplaced it. Um, that still is a fully functioning suppressor. Oh, that's cool. In an operational environment. Yes, especially. Uh, you definitely want to make sure that if, if a part does jettison, that the, the item is still mm-hmm. functional. So that's really cool. One of the other patents we have, which again, kind of lends itself to more operational needs, is it does come with a bunch of disassembly tools for taking it apart and cleaning it. Um, but the front cap actually essentially acts, or the front end cap actually acts as a master key that takes off the rear piston housing which is what is the key for the captured baffle. So the just the suppressor alone is fully disassemble, disassemblable with just everything you have right there. So that's that's a pretty cool feature because, again, if you're out in the field or doing something like that, you do not need any tools whatsoever to, to maintenance your suppressor or to take it apart if you need to do any type of repairs. So in light of this can and all the conversation, uh, we're going to wrap things up. I want to mention to you, uh, or ask you rather, uh, so are there other suppressors on the uh, horizon from Microtech. It is very, very possible. There's definitely been some talks of some different pistol calibers as well as very possibly some rifle um, offerings. Now you're talking. Um, definitely, definitely will be more than likely something we, we see how this one does first. Um, that, you know, like I said, this one took years, multiple years of like actual R&D before we were kind of happy with it because we we didn't want to just be another company who brought a suppressor to the market just just, just to do it box. just to do it because right. a lot of companies do that and they're they're they can be very effective uh, suppressors but we really wanted to kind of with going you know to mimic our brand we really wanted to try our best to make something that was the best that it could be and something different than what everybody else was doing so i, I would definitely say we've accomplished that so hopefully if this one does well we definitely will have some other calibers and other kind of configurations that we'll we'll be working on Awesome. I'm I'm glad you guys took the time to do it right. Um, with it, I know it took a little while, like two years, but you guys did it right, and it's it it works. Versus, you know, I I think Mike over at Guns and Gear did like a bunch of little baby silencers that look really good, like they look cool, but they don't they don't really work that well. <laughs> but they look cool, they just don't work. I think if I can sort of add to that a little bit, Matt. The thing is, is that a lot of suppressor designs 
are relatively simple to make. Okay, so what you wind up running into is any old guy with a machine shop goes, hey, I can I see an opportunity to make some money because the profit margin on a suppressor is typically pretty freaking good, okay? Uh, especially when you're talking an entry-level can. Like, I know at one time when I was still working at Moss, uh, we were selling those little Kestrel cans, I mm-hmm. believe they were, and I think they were like a $199 rimfire can. Even on that, because the materials they use, the profit margin is just ridiculous, the amount of money they make. Imagine. Even on that $200 can, they're mm-hmm. making a pretty good little profit margin. So I can see where the attraction is for someone to go, hey, I've got a machine shop. Uh, we got some downtime. You know what? I'll start a suppressor company. Um, I get that. But with so many different suppressor designs out there and so many different material choices, baffle styles, I mean, like APD at one point had their chemically welded suppressor. That was cool. So there's so many different construction uh, methods, materials, baffle designs, uh, all these different design parameters, right? There's so much competition. So now when someone has to put their best foot forward in terms of where they're going to spend their dollar, I think that the suppressor market now, at least from my layman point of view, Mm -hmm is that people are willing to spend a little more for a bit of a premium product because they know, you know, that you're going to have to wait forever to get it. You got to pay a $200 tax stamp. Um, the item's going to wind up in NFA jail. So I think that there's definitely a, a blurred line. It's like you've either got the super, super, super cheap and the folks that just want to buy the cheapest thing they can get. And I get that. There's a market for that. But then I believe the middle line is blurred super, super, super. Right. So it's like you're either going to buy like something super nice or something super cheap. And the stuff in the middle, I don't know. It, right. Not oh, that yeah. it gets overlooked, but I think, I, I think part of that is because for the longest time in the silencer suppressor industry, there's been no kind of standard. So, you know, you've got companies who, and who have been kind of been caught kind of faking decibel numbers. And you got companies who just all, decide read their numbers differently and, and test their numbers differently so then there's there's really never been a standard i know shameless plug uh there's <clears throat> i don't know if you guys have heard of pew science it's actually uh jay is uh, an engine like a high level engineer does a ton of stuff now has recently just started basically creating his own sound signature review that is a standard for the industry has a machine that i think i think i, I read it reads like a million points of data per second from a silencer. It's just, it's like super high level stuff. And he's done some of his biography stuff. He's done contracts for military and, um, and, and FBI, all sorts of different stuff. And he started doing a lot of that stuff. And so that is going to definitely help. I think the suppressor industry, because honestly, you know, companies aren't going to be able to kind of snake oil sell people, but you know, I think that's all the more reason to buy a quality product no matter what, because with all of the, the runaround with, you know, the ATF and all the paperwork and the tax stamp, you know, I, I've done it too. I, you know, my very first suppressor I purchased was not the most expensive suppressor. Now the company is out of business. I do not shoot it because if I ever screwed it up, there's not a good chance I can get it repaired. And that, you know, it's a thousand dollars down the drain if, if something happened to it. Um, so I, I definitely think that that is something you know, that people should be thinking about, but you know, like with his testing, you know, he, he's been testing a lot of the, uh, the CGS silencers, which they're all now, I think I've got a five, five, six can from them. That's 3d printed in canal. It's like space, like space stuff. It's so awesome. And I think that it's really that type of testing is going to start pushing the envelope of what we think is possible. I, I would say like from an engineering perspective, cause you know, the industry has been fairly stagnant in my opinion for, you know, four or five, six years where we're kind of at the threshold for the most part. And, you know, every once in a while, somebody makes a can that's a half a decibel quieter, maybe one decibel. But, uh, you know, I think with that type yeah, of testing. Yeah, according to who standards. Oh, yeah, right. exactly, exactly. Right. But, you know, I think that that'll really start pushing companies to innovate and start coming up with much better designs. I think you see that, um, and that's one of the major issues in the industry is that there is no standard, regardless of if it's for, uh, you know, sound reduction or even with uh, bullet velocity. Like what you see is what you, what you see on the box. Like, it's no, not like under what, what conditions are you hitting that velocity? Yeah, with a, with everything, a 28 inch, you know, bench exactly. test barrel. Is like, it, yeah, is it even a like... A barrel that no one uses. Yeah. <laughs> right. Is it? Is it just like... This comp- this firearm that you created just to hit peak velocity and then slap it on a box. So I think you see that, you know, rampantly all over the industry. And, you know, unfortunately, until there's like a 
governing body, not to like overrule everybody, but to say, hey, this is the industry standard. You're not really going to see too much innovation because you can fake the funk based on what means you use to test the product. I agree. Well, uh, we are going to wrap things up. Corey, thanks so much for coming on the podcast here today. Thanks, we really man. enjoyed the awesome. conversation. I've enjoyed it. I've, haven't back any time. <laughs> well, the odd thing is, uh, Corey <laughs> is going to be with us on an upcoming flight. We are going to be tasting some tequilas. Oh, yeah. Uh, we hope that you guys will join us for that one. That's going to be an interesting uh, episode. I have to break out the sombrero and the pistols and uh, <laughs> shoot in the air a little bit as we drink. So we'll see how that goes. But um, And uh. Before we wrap it up, we just have a big shout out to putting a little bit of South in your mouth for some Linton's White Gravy. Absolutely. Thank you, Mr. Linton, for the uh, sponsorship of the show. Uh, You know, those of you who are looking for the best gravy in town, make sure uh, that you get a little bit of Linton South in your mouth. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Thank you for tuning in for today's podcast. Every Friday here on uh, Life, Liberty, and Pursuit. Live free, be happy. We'll see you soon. We're out of here. Bye, everybody. See you guys. Thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Pursuit. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are found. Be sure to leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. You can support us over on Ballistic Inc. by picking yourself up some merch. And remember, guys, dangerous freedom. Have a good one.